Hey, San Francisco. We're coming back to see you. Aw, yes. Our second year in a row, we're going to be going to SF Sketch Fest. Mm-hmm. I like to think it's the premier comedy festival in the United States. Probably, well, in the world. You think so? Yeah. What about Beijing? Nope. <laughs> it's, a, it's a close second, but a second. Well, we love San Francisco. We love performing there. Uh, everyone is always so kind to us. And by San Francisco, we mean the entire Bay Area, of course. Yeah. So we will be there doing our thing. For a one-time only show mm-hmm. on Sunday, January 15th at 1 p.m. Yeah, it's a rare Sunday afternoon. We're like the NFL of podcasters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right? That's that's what I've always thought. So uh, all you have to do is go to the uh, SF Sketchfest site, look at the old calendar, and there are tons of great people performing. Oh, yeah. So I suggest like just doubling down and getting tickets to all kinds of good shows. For sure. And hurry up and get tickets to ours because they've only been on sale for a week or so and they're already half sold out. That's right. So please hurry, San Francisco. Please hurry. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and we have guest producer Noel with us. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Part two. That's right. And Part two. Actually, things are going to get weird, because Noel's about to leave, I think, and then that means we're alone again. <laughs> Just, you never know what's going to happen. The beating of our hearts is the only sound. <laughs> Stuff You Should Know, after dark. <laughs> oh, this got weird pretty quick. Uh, so this is part two of how feeding babies works, mm-hmm. right? Are we on the same page? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope so. Uh, and part one, I think, went down pretty well. It's, uh, it was a little nerve-wracking being two dudes right? Uh, at the risk of do- doing it wrong or, or, like you said, mansplaining, which I, I even hate saying that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. We didn't come across as we were hanging on by just our fingernails like I felt for most of the time. I think we did all right, too. Yeah. And today we're going to focus a lot more on uh, formula feeding, which I feel much more comfortable because it's something I know a lot about. Right. Yeah. I figured you could probably do a lot of the heavy lifting on this one. Well, it's not that heavy. Just five or six ounces at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, this one is, the first one is called the breast. This one is called the bottle. Oh. And, yeah, you know, the bottle is usually filled with formula, but there's plenty of other stuff you could fill with it, specifically breast milk. Um, but a lot of women start using bottles fairly early on, sometimes from the outset, and there's a lot of reasons why. There's a lot of reasons, I guess, in other words, why um, women either choose not to or uh, ultimately have chosen for them not to breastfeed. Um, and one of the big ones that's actually pretty common, is a condition called mastitis. Yes. And mastitis is basically an extremely, extremely painful uh, inflammation of the breast, or breasts, I guess, in the worst case, which can be brought on by, like, sore or cracked nipples, um, or an infection in the breast, blocked milk ducts. There's a lot of stuff that can bring it on. And as painful as breastfeeding can be, 
Apparently, the recommended treatment, course of treatment for mastitis is to keep on breastfeeding. That, right. Like, like, clear, like, actually, the flow of milk through the breast clears up the inflammation and even the infection in some cases. And I was trying to figure that out. Like, how would that work? But then I remembered that breast milk is so chock full of antibodies yeah. that I guess it would deliver the antibodies to that site as well, right? Wouldn't that... That was the only thing I could come up with. Yeah, that makes sense. And, if, you know, yes, or, uh, well, actually, we did record. We'll let the cat out of the bag. We're recording these on two separate days, even. Yeah. We usually do the sweets in one day, but, uh, yeah, we decided to sleep on it. <laughs> right. And I think that's probably a good move. But uh, yesterday, uh, when I mentioned my mother did not breastfeed me and she had some problems with my brother, I think mm-hmm. that was the deal. I think there was... Um, it was pain and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, like, from what I can gather, mastitis is not just pain. Like, you feel very ill and run down, and yeah. apparently you're supposed to get lots of bed rest and, and nutritious fluids and uh, express your milk every two hours, and apparently... And express yourself, for that matter. <laughs> right, which is, probably amounts to, um, I'm in hell right now. Yeah, probably. Um, but the, when you put all this stuff together on top of like all of the normal things that you have to do under the best of circumstances when caring for a newborn, this very frequently represents the last straw for women who are like on the fence about breastfeeding. Yeah. The the mastitis commonly leads them to say, we're done with that. I'm done with breastfeeding. Sure. That's one. Um, another one I came across that, um, I hadn't really thought about that kind of surprised me was boob jobs. Yeah, I, I never considered this until you uh, did the research, and then I thought, oh, you know what? I never even thought about that. It's yeah. so out of my uh, sphere of consciousness. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know? pretty great, yeah. Uh, oh, I don't think I meant that to be a pun, was it? No, it, it wasn't. It was. It's a great T-shirt. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like instead of talk to the hand, it's you are now out of my sphere of consciousness. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, so if you do get breast implants... Um, it, it kind of depends on the reasons why, how it's done, uh, where it's actually done, uh, obviously, in the breast area. <laughs> but they have, we haven't done one on breast implants, have we? Dude, one of our better episodes is on breast implants. Really? Yeah, remember I said I, I wanted to see what a breast implant looks like on a dog, because apparently they <laughs> practice on dogs early on. Yeah, I remember now. <laughs> yeah, that was a great episode from beginning to end. It was a long time ago, though. Right. Um so, getting back to it, the uh, the incisions, it depends on uh, where they're made. Uh, if they go across uh, the nipples or areola, it's probably likely that your milk ducts and the nerves were cut. Right. Which and means you probably can't breastfeed. Exactly. But if you had a good doctor and they went like into your armpit or underneath your breast, they probably also specifically chose to save those nerves and go around them. So, if the, your incisions are under your breast or under your armpit... Uh, you you probably are able to breastfeed. I imagine that's a part of the conversation when you go in there, don't you think? Probably. Like, hey, do you want to have kids, or do you have kids, or do you want to breastfeed? Yeah. Like, I would. I don't know. I've never. I've never had a consultation. <laughs> no, but you, I mean, it, it does seem reasonable that that would be part of it for sure. I would think so. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, if you still have feeling in your nipples, that's a good sign mm-hmm. uh, that the nerves are still intact, uh, and. Sometimes that takes a little while to come back, though. Yeah, if you just had your your uh, breast augmentation surgery and the feeling isn't back, that doesn't mean it's not going to come back. So that's not a sign. But if it's been years now yeah. and you have feeling back in your nipples, you probably can uh, can breastfeed. Right. 
uh, where you got your implants counts too. If it's in the uh, actual mammary tissue, uh-huh. um, that's going to be a problem. It's going to get in the way of milk production. But if they put it under your chest muscles, which is more involved, but um, is basically out of the way of your your um, actual breasts. Yeah. You can um, probably breastfeed. I feel like I should be finishing each one of these with, you're probably a redneck. <laughs> you know? You probably can breastfeed. Uh, if the implant is on the back of your neck, the good news is you can breastfeed, but you probably made a, a grave error in your choice of doctors. <laughs> right. Then you might be a redneck. Uh, <laughs> no, you'd be a boob neck. <laughs> Uh, and then the, the the reason for having it is another um, factor. If you if you just got the breast implants because you wanted larger breasts and it was purely cosmetic, then you probably are a better candidate for breastfeeding. Uh, whereas if you got implants because uh, the tissue was never developed or there was uh, maybe uh, asymmetric uh, problems or if the breasts were f- far apart from one another, like these are reasons that uh, you may not be able to breastfeed. And again, I imagine in the consult, this will all be covered. Yeah, like if you got breast augmentation because your mammary tissue didn't develop properly uh, or normally, then, um, yeah, you might not be able to breastfeed. So those are a couple. There's plenty of other reasons why a woman would choose not to breastfeed. Um in large part, it's a matter of preference, right? Some women just simply don't want to breastfeed. Some are afraid it's going to hurt. Some are embarrassed by the idea. Um, in some families, it's a family tradition that you're raised on formula. Um, there's basically as many reasons for a woman to choose not to breastfeed uh, as, as as there are reasons, probably even more, to tell you the truth. Uh, so let's dive back in history a bit. We sort of, uh, I guess we usually do history first, but this is sort of woven in sensibly, I think. Um, back in the day, it was, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I, I've heard wet nurse my whole life. I've known that was a term, but I literally never knew what that was. Really? No, I don't know why. It's just, maybe I'm a big dummy, but I had no idea that a wet nurse is a woman who breastfeeds someone else's child. <laughs> That's funny. I did not know that. Did you had did you think it was something else or you just never stopped and thought about what never a wet nurse stopped was? and thought about it I never needed one so I was just like yeah you know put a wet nurse on it <laughs> sure that'll help <laughs> right that'll clear that bum knee right up it's better than a dry nurse right sure dry nurses are chapped and cracked <laughs> so yeah that's what what happens uh, and it was it was very common practice uh, back in the day especially before the feeding bottle was invented and. Um, of course, uh, as you would imagine, it was an alternative mainly for uh, people of higher status. Yeah, yeah, that's actually kind of fascinating um, in that uh, for a very, very long time, except for a period between about 1830 or 1820 and 18, no, I'm sorry, 1850 and 1880, when breastfeeding was all the rage in America, very much akin to the situation now. Yeah. Breastfeeding was seen as what the um, women of lower socioeconomic classes did. Like they can't afford a wet nurse, so they have to feed their baby. Exactly. Right, exactly. Or like I would hire a woman of a a lower uh, socioeconomic class to feed my own baby. Right. um, Just because it just wasn't done. Women didn't do that kind of thing if you were well-off or well-to-do. Yeah, which is 
is terrible, but you, um, I never considered that it, a lot of mothers died during, or not a lot, but uh, plenty more mothers died during childbirth back mm-hmm. then. Right. And so that's a, a chance to save these babies, which is amazing. Sure, truly, for sure. I mean, like, and that's, that's one way that wet nurses really did kind of keep things going. Uh, but for the, for a large part, for about 2,000 years, um, breastfeeding or the use of wet nurses was basically what you what women of a higher status did. They hired breast or wet nurses. Yeah, which is I had no idea. It's fascinating. It is, and even more to the point, uh, it kind of formed the basis of this idea that um, not breastfeeding was preferable to breastfeeding. That you were, it was better to not breastfeed if you were able to, right? Right. It was the preference of the wealthier class, whereas the exact opposite is is the the position today. They've completely switched positions today. Yeah, and this this author Catherine Joyce uh, in the New Republic um, basically said, you know, it's been a constant throughout history that whether whichever is in fashion, they think they're right. Right. Like one is viewed as better than the other. It right. depends on where you are in history as to which that was. It's not equal. It's not different. One is clearly better. And right. in many cases, especially as the cases now um, concerning breastfeeding, it's morally better in the view of the people who champion it. That's right. You know? Um, so for a very long time, men have been extremely fascinated with breast milk. Or with feeding babies, right? Uh-huh. And they've applied scientific inquiry to the whole thing. It's because they can't do it. I think that is part of it. Sure. You know? Um, well, yeah, be, well, I mean, we covered that yesterday. We could try all we wanted to. wouldn't work. No. So maybe that is part of the reason. I hadn't really considered that. But there has been a, a lot of scientific inquiry. Ironically, it hasn't really come up with any set stuff. But as far back as, um, I think, ninety, the 90s... Just the 90s, not even the 1990s, <laughs> 1900 years before the 1990s, there was a guy named Seronis of Ephesus, and he was an early physician who basically wrote a 23-chapter treatise on obstetrics and pediatrics and gyne- uh, gynecology, and uh, one of the things he focused on was breast milk. Yeah, and his big uh, contribution, uh, well, one of the big contributions was a, a test for the consistency of breast milk that stood for about 1,500 years, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Be, well, because it's clearly infallible. Yeah, so here's what you do is you uh, you take a fingernail right, and you drop a drop of breast milk on the fingernail, mm-hmm. and I guess the fingernail's facing up and you're flat with the finger. Right. Uh, when it's on the fingernail and you move the finger, the milk is not supposed to be so watered down that it runs all over the nail. And when you point your fingernail down, it's not so thick that it uh, turns into a transformer robot. <laughs> right. No, it's not so thick that it clings to the nail. And that you're looking for somewhere in the middle is what he says. And for 1,500 years, people said, yep, that's how you do it. Yeah. And so not only was that like uh, your breast milk's great, but also this wet nurse's breast milk is adequate for the contract you want to give her. Oh, sure. I never thought about that. Yeah. That probably had a lot to do with it. For sure. Um, and people also used animal milk as well. Apparently for the last 2,000 years, there's evidence of people using animal milk. Yeah. Um, but for for the most part, it was wet nurses and then formula. 
Artificial formula. Yeah, which came back, what, late 19th century? Yeah. Um, in the 19th century, there was a guy named uh, Eustace von Liebig, and he set about trying to create a perfect infant food, an artificial breast milk, right? And in 1865, he kind of cracked it. He, he made a, a liquid form and then a powdered form, and it was made up of cow's milk, wheat and malt flour, and potassium bicarbonate. And when he came up with this in the 1860s, um, it was considered like the perfect infant food, basically better than breast milk. Yeah, and by this point, this was about uh, 15-ish years after the first feeding bottles were introduced in France. Right. So people were ready. Like, we've got the bottle, we've we've worked out these very rudimentary cork nipples, and... Um, we need something to put in it that besides breast milk. One of the other things that that um, came all all this stuff kind of came together to form the basis of a successful formula feeding formula, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those was things like sterilization, pasteurization, germ theory, because in the early nineteenth century they were trying out like bottles and stuff like that. But it was killing infants left and right because yeah. they didn't know about sterilization. Ugh. They didn't know about um, germ theory at the time. They, uh, I think something like one-third of non-breastfed babies died from being fed um, artificial milk. That's staggering. It is. It's a lot. So there was a huge breakthrough in the late 19th century when they came up with a decent formula that wasn't um, just animal milk and that they could deliver it in a, a, some sort of feeding apparatus that wasn't going to ultimately kill the baby. Right. So that was a big deal. Yeah, and this is all, like I said, uh, early 1850s is when the bottle comes. Um, 1865 is when von Liebig developed his. Um, and sort of a little before and a little after, you had people like uh, Gail Borden, if that name rings a bell, uh, Eagle Brand Borden Condensed Milk. Uh, she came up with that, um, adding he, sugar. Oh, was, was it he, a... I'm pretty sure. Huh. It, it, it could be a, a boy. It sounds like it. Just imagine him as a country western singer. <laughs> no, Gail totally can be a guy's name. I just sure. I defaulted to lady because, uh, I don't know, because it's about breastfeeding, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, I guess, added sugar to evaporated milk, uh, canned it, and that was condensed milk. And then about 30 years later, uh, I mean, it became popular as an infant food, obviously. Right. Have you ever had... Condensed milk, in in things, not by yeah. itself. In things like cheesecakes and and like the sweetest desserts you can ever have. Yeah, they were feeding that sh- that stuff straight up to <laughs> infants <laughs> as infant food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, about thirty years later, uh, another one, uh, John B. Myerling, was that a man? It's possible. Uh, he developed an unsweetened condensed milk, um, called it evaporated milk. And this became a big thing to feed babies in the 30s and 40s. Right. Um, all this stuff had a lot of fat. Um, it would plump your baby up really well, but it was missing a lot of the things right. uh, that babies need to thrive. Like, why does my baby have claws instead of fingernails and, like, <laughs> dark circles under his eyes? It's oh, terrible. nutrients. That's right. We need vitamins in this stuff. Yeah, which uh, in the 1920s or so is when scientists started developing these uh, formulas that didn't even have cow's milk at all. Right, right. For kids that had um, milk allergies, they started using, like, soy flour. Sure. 
Yeah, and so when they figured out that um, you could take this stuff and evaporate milk or evaporate soy protein and add this other stuff to it, like nutrients and vitamins, um, and balance it all out, formula really took off, and it became... Uh, a really almost a triumph of science in the popular culture, right? So starting in the 30s in America, if you wanted formula, you basically had to go to your doctor for it. You didn't necessarily need a prescription from what I saw, but the, the rule was that if you were a formula manufacturer, you could only advertise directly to doctors. Yeah. So it gave formula this kind of air of medicine, like it was, it was medical in nature. It was like sterile and high quality, and that had the stamp of science behind it. And it it lionized the physicians who were now in between the mother and the baby's food, right? Yeah. The doctor needed to recommend it, and so it was a it was a real way that um, science and medicine and Parenting, especially early, early childhood parenting, came fused together. And so there was this idea that science had, had conquered nature and created this perfect infant food. Yes. So by the 1940s and 50s, this is when formula had really taken root uh, in the United States and I guess around the world, yeah. but definitely in the United States. And it, it definitely caused a decline in breastfeeding for about 30 years. Yeah, I mean, this is around the time the La Leche League started to organize in the 50s as a, res- a direct result of this decline in breastfeeding. Um, and it continued on even into the 70s it, where the Our Bodies Ourselves people um, organized that second wave of lactivism, right? Yeah. And formulas like flying high from the 30s, the 40s, on to about the mid-70s. And you can actually point to one specific scandal that that basically led to a massive uh, erosion of trust in formula not just in the United States but around the world that's still around today actually yeah uh, the Nestle company in the mid 1970s they were sued because they were trying to uh, really market formula to developing countries they very aggressively to, yeah they wanted to sell more formula so they would do things like send uh, saleswomen over dressed up in nurses' uniforms who were not nurses, right? Uh, giving obviously the indication like, "Hey, this this is a great thing. You should you should use it." And formula was a great thing uh, that they developed it for sure. But what they didn't say in Africa to these mothers is that, "Hey, you need really good clean water here for this to be uh, a viable source of nutrition for your kid." They didn't know that. Uh, they used the tainted water, and infants started dying. Yeah, and it was laid squarely at the feet of Nestle formula, and ultimately formula in general. Yeah. Um, and that was, I think, 1974 that that happened. And a, a few years later, the World Health Organization came up with these guidelines for for, for marketing formula around the world it was such a huge scandal and the u.s said oh wait you know what we just realized there's nobody overseeing our formula market maybe we should put the fda on that so it wasn't until 1980 that the united states tasked the fda with overseeing the quality and purity 
of formula. Yeah, before then it was apparently just crazy. totally unregulated. Yeah, I can't believe 1980. That's really, really surprising. But the whole suspicion of formula and the whole idea that it's dangerous or that it's problematic, it all stems from that event, that, um, that, that scandal with Nestle in Africa. Yeah, so about eight years later, in the late 80s, uh, the formula folks started, uh, they could advertise directly to the public for the first time, uh, got on TV, got in uh, print ads, and said, hey, use, the, use our formula, it's good stuff. And um, apparently the American Academy of Pediatrics, though, still didn't like this kind of advertising and said, you should still go to your doctor and talk about all this stuff. Right, which is a conundrum. It's like, well, wait a minute, are you guys saying that the... The formula industry is being greedy and and reckless by going around you. Yeah. Or are you just trying to preserve, you know, your own bank accounts by re insinuating yourselves into this this factor when you're not really necessary? It's like just one more thing you have to figure out when you're trying to raise a, a newborn infant that just stinks, you know? All right. Well speaking of stinks, uh I need to take a break. And um We'll come back in a minute and talk a little bit about uh, milk banks and other cool things. All right, Chuckers, we're back, right? We're at the milk bank. Yeah, milk bank is uh, it's pretty neat. I hadn't heard of it before. Um, had you? Oh, I'm sure you have. No, I actually hadn't heard of any of this stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Well, let's talk milk banks then, baby. <laughs> All right. So let's say um, breastfeeding is not an option for any of the reasons we've talked about for mom. Um, you can go to a milk bank where milk has been donated, breast milk, obviously, Uh from from women, and uh, you can pay a lot of money for banked milk that you know is very healthy, fully screened, mm-hmm. uh, just like going to a blood bank, basically. Right, exactly. Um, you need a doctor's prescription, uh, and it is expensive, like five bucks an ounce. Man, which that is, is a lot of money. <laughs> it is, but it's good, high-quality, disease-free mother's milk, right? Yes. And so I've seen that some insurance companies, some insurance plans will either pay all or some of that cost, so it can drop dramatically. But because it's so expensive and because not all insurance covers it, um, other um, peripheral milk exchanges have grown up. Some alarming, some slightly less alarming. But yeah. like there's one called Only the Breast, which is a lot looks a lot like Craigslist for milk. Okay. <laughs> have you been on it? No, I actually didn't go to the website. So every probably every third um, ad is like some sort of weird porno ad or something like that. Oh well that's a good start. But the other two are legitimate you know, like, I have milk, I'm healthy, and I just have too much, so I'm selling it for a dollar an ounce or something like that. Um, it's and not like I got the best stuff out there? Well, no. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I didn't run across any of that. But yeah. there's also, uh, like, something that, that you can also click that says, like, men need not contact me. Because apparently there's, like, a whole thing of weirdos out there who are like, hey, sell me your extra breast milk. You know, I was going to make a joke a minute ago. 
about milk banks being for, you know, mothers who can't or won't breastfeed mm-hmm. or creepy, weird, wealthy guys. They go to only the breast, apparently. So is it a thing for men to drink breast milk? I guess so, because you can go on to only the breast. And most, uh, from what I saw, most of the legitimate ads were like, no, don't, I don't want any men to contact me. No. But there are, that means that there are some out there where if you are a man, you can buy breast milk. Which, I mean, I guess if you have that fetish and it's not hurting anybody, then yeah. great, but still. I mean, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> so. So you've got only the breast. The problem is this, right? And I don't mean to pick on only the breast. There's other um, milk-sharing sites like this that definitely do serve a function where if you want to feed your baby mother's milk um, and you just can't afford $5 an ounce, but you yeah. can afford $1 an ounce. And some some women on there have it for free. They're just donating it. They don't aren't charging anything for it. Yeah. Um, that's a viable place to go. The problem is this: the milk you're getting is not in any way screened. You have no idea whether the person you're getting it from, despite how great they look and how healthy they look, whether they're actually disease-free, and hence whether their milk is disease-free. Yeah. Which is, that's very alarming. It is. There's also uh, something called cross-nursing, which seems like a reasonable alternative, and that's that's basically just when two women or four or five just people who know each other, like neighbors or good friends that are pregnant at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, will cross-nurse, and basically it's it's just milk-sharing among uh, a few people. Straight from the tap? Straight, well, not straight from the tap. They'll, they'll bottle it up. Oh, okay. And, and go next door and say, you know, I had this leftover milk. You're in need. Oh, I see. I it's see. Just, it's basically milk sharing, but gotcha. but not through, like, some big website. It's just among friends. I got gotcha. you. Just keep it between friends. There is there is a website called Milk Share that is, it's along the lines of only the breast, but it's much more um, uh, regimented. Yeah. Um, it's all donated. It's all free, um, or there's no charge. And... Um, there are there's like guidelines for storing and shipping and stuff like that that only the breast didn't have. But again, still, as far as I know, it's not screened for anything. Yeah, and we're not disparaging anyone who wants to use services like this at all. Sure. Just want to make that clear. It's just we want people to be as safe as possible. Yeah. I mean, wh- what's the alternative, though? You know, like if you want to feed your child breast milk, I know. you can't breastfeed and you just don't have the money. Yeah. What do you do? You know, that's a sticky situation. It is. It's very sad. Uh, we talked a little bit about the breast pump yesterday, but um, we'll, we'll really get into it here. It was invented in the early 19th, uh, I don't know if it was early, but let's just say 19th century. It was about the time when formula was really starting to come into its own. All right. Well, that kind of makes sense in a way. Everyone's like vying for that space in the industry. Yeah. Even back then. Right. Uh, and the earliest models are probably what you think. It's basically a, a cow milking machine that's been modified slightly. Um, looks like a, a, a vacuum and a hand pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, and this is something I had no idea, um, as far as a consumer-delivered at-home product, it's only been around since about 1991 when uh, Medela introduced the first at home, electric powered, uh, you can you can have it in your as a consumer use breast pump. Yeah, right. So up I, to I had no idea it was that new. Right, 
Yeah, and ever since then, there's this a really great Jill Lepore article from The New Yorker called Baby Food, where she kind of chronicles the rise of the breast pump. But she points out that since 1991, between 1991 and 2009, um, sales of Medela's model alone had quadrupled yeah. and they become ubiquitous, you know? Um, then they started out as a medical device. Like if your baby couldn't, um, couldn't nurse, you could still feed your baby breast milk by using these pumps. Right. So, and it was a, a medical intervention that became a consumer product. And the reason it spread in popularity like wildfire is because it makes a uh, breastfeeding mom's life exponentially more awesome than if they're just nursing. Yeah, I mean, it obviously has the advantages of freeing mom up uh, by being able to uh, bank that milk uh, on her own. Uh, then dad can help feed, a babysitter, daycare worker can help mm-hmm. feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, mom can sleep through the night, maybe even, if, uh, you know, dad is a good dad and a good husband. <laughs> she, she can go to the store by herself? Uh, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, rather than having to, to feed every two hours or to express milk every two hours, oh. she can go, as far as I've seen, up to like six hours between expressions, right? Gotcha. So you can fit a lot of time away by yourself in that six hours rather than two. Yeah, I hear you. It's another big one. Uh, it also made things uh, way easier in the workforce, obviously. Uh, we, we did touch on it yesterday with, um, as of 2010, here in the United States, um, employers are required to provide these break times and a private place, but it's not like we had a lovely lactation room in our last office. Right. We actually recorded in there once, I think. I actually was studying in there once, um, and I was like, huh, lactation room, but it didn't occur to me like that was a lactation room at all times rather than just when uh, somebody was in there pumping. Um, so I was in there studying because it was very quiet and comfortable <laughs> before I finally got kicked out and it dawned on me that, oh, that's the lactation room all the time. I should probably steer clear of that place. So you're in there smoking a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much doing shots of whiskey. Uh, and you mentioned a second ago that um, the uh, the breast pump allowed women, if their baby had trouble nursing, one of the issues that can happen uh, is called nipple confusion. And it is um, not confusion, which is a little confusing. Um, it is not the baby doesn't know like whether or not it's mom's nipple or a bottle nipple, it's that the baby actually has a preference for the bottle nipple. Right, yeah. The baby has been introduced to the bottle and is now that the mom's like, okay, don't forget about the boob. The baby's like, no, no, no. I'm I'm pretty hip on the, the bottle instead. Let's just stick with that. Yeah, I think it's it's a little easier, supposedly, right, for a baby to feed from a bottle. Yeah. Uh, easier for the baby, that is. Right. It, it employs gravity more than the um, the breast does, and the baby has to work less. And since babies are inherently lazy, um, <laughs> they're like, I like the bottle more. I just, I don't understand why it was ever called nipple confusion, and I couldn't find the origin of it. Although, I, I, I bet your nipple preference just sounded mean. I guess so, yeah. Like they were worried that the mom would take it as rejection or sure. something. Yeah, Absolutely. there you go. Uh, just lie. <laughs> uh, and so they say experts do that if you want to try and avoid that uh, potential at least that you want to at least try and breastfeed if that's what you're going to do for two weeks before the baby sees any sort of uh, bottled nipple yeah right you want them to get good at breastfeeding so they can remember how yeah right seems smart yeah your lazy little dumb baby is smarter and not as lazy as you think no or confused <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. So um, if you are going with formula, there's a lot of different types available, as I'm sure you know, yes. more than me even. Sure. Um, from what I found, though, that almost all of the milk-based ones, which is the standard version, all of the, the milk-based versions are almost exactly the same. Yeah, they, there are things that the FDA requires be present. So you're going to see a lot of the same stuff. Um, should we go through the list here? I love this list, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Protein. Oh, yum. Fat. Mm. Vitamin C, A, D, E, K, B1, B2, B6, and B12. Yeah. Niacin. Delicious. Folic acid. Love it. Uh, pantothenic acid. Yeah. Calcium. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about phosphorus? <laughs> uh, it's a little stinky. Magnesium, iron, uh-huh. zinc. Here's the best one, manganese. It's like a, a, a mongoose and a mango mixed together. <laughs> Copper, iodine, sodium, potassium, and chloride. Why do they always put potassium and chloride together? You ever notice that? Mm, I don't know. One thing that you may not find in your formula, you probably won't, is a fluoride supplement. And the guy who wrote the How Stuff Works article is just cuckoo for fluoride. Yeah. He wants to make sure that your baby has fluoride coming out of his or her ears. <laughs> um, which, you know. That would be I'm, bad, actually. I'm ambivalent on that. Well, they do say, um, I think the American Academy of Pediatrics says no fluoride supplements at all to babies six months or younger. Oh, is that right? Good, yeah. good to add that. Because uh, fluorosis is a concern in that case. That's not what uh, this guy's saying, so yeah, good he's, catch. He's clearly doesn't work for the American Academy of Pediatrics. The thing about um, formula, though, is like you, you would like to think it's all pure and wonderful and like the best ingredients, and there are some out there, and I'm sure they're mondo expensive, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the good organic formula is a little pricier for sure. But there's also ones that are like, uh, they appear to be almost junk food for babies. Well, yeah, I mean, read the read those labels uh, for sure, like corn syrup and artificial sweeteners and cornstarch sweeteners. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do what you want, but I would avoid that stuff. Sure. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people aren't 100% aware that that stuff's in their, um, their, their baby food. Probably so. And, and, I mean, a lot of it's disguised. Like maltodextrin sounds... Natural, but that's corn. That's cornstarch sweetener. I don't think that sounds natural at all. But it sounds like it's um, sounds like a quarterback for like a middling Midwest college or something like that. Maltodextrin takes the field. It just sounds like that hearty Mid America kind of thing. All right, it's not coastal at all. No, it's not coastal. Uh, if the, your little BB has uh, intolerance to milk. Um, like a milk allergy, you can get those soy protein or coconut milk um, formulas still. They're still out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they now have the proper extra nu- nutrients added, uh, which they did not used to have. Right. And you can also get, did you say coconut too? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I like the sound of that one. Coconut oh, milk? Sure. <laughs> coconut, anything's good. Yeah, I tried the formula once. How is it? Yeah. Is it sweet at all, or are these sweeteners just strictly for carbohydrates' sake? Mm, I don't remember how sweet it was. I don't think I got enough to really... 
Oh, I see. This is after a couple of scotches, huh? <laughs> You're like, let me see that. Bring me that bottle. <laughs> Not that bottle. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Speaking of uh, sweeteners, though, if you uh, want to get close to breast milk, the, the sweetener you want to look for, the main sweetening ingredient in your formula is lactose. Okay. Lactose. But then, like you said, you may find out that your kid is lactose intolerant, sure. in which case you have some alternatives, especially soy and coconut, which yeah. is my favorite. <laughs> so, uh, formula, you're going to have a few choices. You can have, um, like what they'll give you in the hospital a lot of times is a, just the, the bottles already pre-packaged and pre-made, uh, which obviously mm-hmm. it doesn't get any easier than that. You just pop the top and go at it. Uh, pre-measured and everything. And those are okay? Yeah, I mean, th- th- those come in a variety of kinds as well, like right. from probably ones that um, aren't as great to the to more expensive, better ones. Okay. Um, it's basically just the, the pre-made version of the powder that you might buy. Right, right. And the fact that they already measured out the the precise amount and added the water and shook it all together already, yes. that's what you're paying for. The convenience, I guess, in other words. Yeah, but, you know, it's they're disposable, so you're, you're I mean, you're recycling the bottles, hopefully, but it's still uh, something that you, it's it's a one-use thing. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then you got your concentrates and your powders, and um, price and convenience are kind of what play in here according to what you're going to go with in addition to what little BB will will want to eat. Right. You know, some babies are like I don't I don't like that. I, re- I reject your formula. <laughs> Give me another one. Or this right. one makes me have reflux or makes me super gassy. Yeah, that was the thing that I saw too that that uh, even the formulas are virtually all the same. Um yeah, your baby might have a strong preference for one over another. I think they're different. Try them. Yeah, I think that the thing, the recipes are tweaked because there can. I mean, some of them say like uh, for gas problems specifically and stuff like that. Oh, gotcha. So there must be some either a little less of something or maybe a little more of something would be my guess. Gotcha. And I'm just I'm flying off the cuff here, so if I got that wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the other things that. Um, formula requires is really good water yes um which again the author of the house of works article who apparently is unaware of fluorosis um says just use tap water you can totally use cold tap water and he does say you never want to use hot tap water when you're creating formula because if you do have um lead plumbing anywhere connecting to your house hot water will leach it out more and we covered that big time on our one about Flint, Michigan. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Um, so you want to use cold tap water. I would say use filtered water. Yeah, that's what we did. For formula, sure. But if, you, if you're just using it out of the tap, and, and the rule of thumb is if you can drink the tap water safely, uh, your baby should be able to as well. But um, just be sure to use cold water. Yeah, and in fact, I think for the first little while we were even using spring water sure just to be like those first few weeks or you know until you get a little more comfortable mm-hmm. or a little bit like all right like <laughs> am i doing everything right yeah no i don't blame you man and then you get a little more relaxed you're like oh the you know babies are pretty hardy little monsters right you know and apparently also like i i was surprised that they'll they'll take formula cold but um Apparently they'll take it cold right out of the fridge. Well, it depends. Like depends on the baby. Well, yeah. Like um, some babies are like, no, 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 no. Heat that, heat that stuff up. 
Right. Well, when you're heating it up, you only want to run it under hot tap water, in which case it's fine because you're not actually adding the hot tap water. You're just using it to run out on the outside of the bottle, right, to heat it up? Yeah, I'm going to advise against that. <laughs> okay. How do you heat it up then? Because I saw it don't use a microwave. Well, there's a, you can buy a bottle warmer, which is basically oh. like a... Uh, just a little round thing with uh, that you have water in the bottom that boils it like a tea kettle. It's like a water bath? Yeah, it's a little water bath. But the, the reason I suggest that is if it takes a long time to, to warm it up under tap water, and so you're literally like just running water for like five minutes. Oh, that's a, that's a good, that's kind of wasteful, you're right. Uh, and at first I was like, ah, eh, bottle warmer. They try to sell you all this junk. <laughs> I literally was like that. And, you know, I tried, I was like, look, you can just put it in a coffee cup and put some hot water in there. But that cools off like really quick. Gotcha. And the bottle warmer was like fifteen dollars. Then you were like, "Well, look, you can just put the coffee cup on the stove, <laughs> turn the stove off, <laughs> turn it on." Yeah, Emily was basically like, uh, "Get the bottle warmer done," <laughs> <laughs> and it's infinitely easier. You just just click it on. It's got a little timer for a couple of minutes or whatever, and it, and it heats it up, and you're not wasting as much water. That's that's cool. But in a pinch, like when you're out and about, you definitely like the running it under tap water works. I think there's two things then that the federal government should give every new parent uh, at least a year's supply of infant formula, mm-hmm. good stuff, yeah, and a bottle warmer. Okay, <laughs> like just for just for being a, 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 an American, you should get that. Yeah, where what country is it? Sweden. Where they give them the box? Norway. Is it Norway? I don't know. No, I think it's one. I think it's one of those. I'm sure. Oh, I know what you're talking about. The box can be used as like a baby, like a crib, even. Yeah. Oh, I think it is a Nordic country, and it's like this old tradition that they still do. And uh, I think I posted something about it, and I was like, "What in the world?" And all these women are like, "No, dude, it's the best. Like, they're doing it right." Yeah. But I can't remember. It was some sort of baby box. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I think it came with stuff in it, but then you take the stuff out of it, and then you put your baby in it. Right. I have to look into that. I think I'm describing it correctly. And the baby's like, echo, echo. <laughs> uh, so when you get your bottles and your nipples, when you decide on the ones, there are a bunch of them out there, but when you decide on the one that works, that you like and that works for baby, um, you you want to sterilize it at, right out of the package by boiling it. Mm-hmm. But then after that, you can just wash it in the dishwasher with hot water. Supposedly, unless your um, house is, uh, operates on well water, in which case you may want to be a little more um, sterilific. <laughs> you know? Uh, and in 2012, they banned BPA uh, for baby bottles because BPA has been shown to leach from its uh, plastic containers, uh, the products, uh, when heated up. And so since 2012, anything you buy won't will be BPA-free. But if people, I mean, that wasn't that long ago. So if people are like, here, take my old bottles or, you know, have my hand downs you got to look um, look on the bottom. And if you see a number seven on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Or PC. Yeah, then it might have BPA. So you should just try and get a new one. Yeah, and you, you don't be also lulled into complacency by things that say BPA-free, because they may be certified even BPA-free, but two replacements that um, have come to stand in for BPA, BPS and BPF, are apparently just as bad endocrine, endocrine disruptors as BPA. So what you really want to do is just avoid any clear plastic bottles, 
you want to use the opaque kind because they're usually made of polyethylene or polypropylene. And you want to go with ones that have the recycling symbol with the number two or the number five in them. Those are legitimately free of BPA or, or bisphenols of any kind. Yeah, they should put a little baby with a thumbs up. They, they, they should just, uh, yes, it shouldn't you know? have taken this many years for, I, I'm just, the whole BPA thing really gets me going. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is only four years ago. They're like, oh, wait a minute, it's leaching uh, when you heat it up into your baby's food. Yeah, well, well wait, we're making money off of it. <laughs> Sorry, see, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you can get glass bottles now. Yeah. Back in the day, that was all you would see, obviously, uh, and they still make great glass bottles, and um, they're a bit heavier um, to hold. They obviously can break if you drop them, but I've seen a lot of places like the hazards of dropping and breaking a bottle. Eh, I mean, it's not that big of a hazard. Seriously. It's like, it's like any, I mean, if you, unless you don't have any glass in your house at all, right. you could always drop a glass. Sure. Also, I you mean, know? these things aren't the most fragile things you've ever encountered, no, too, I would guess. thick and heavy. Sure. Yeah. So they just crack the baby's face if you drop it. <laughs> okay. I would guess that's a bigger hazard than it breaking, right? Uh, mm, no, I mean, no, all right. you should be holding that bottle, you know? Sure. Which we're going to get into, right? Yeah, you want to take a break first? Yeah. Okay. Hey, so Chuck, I saw something. Um, I think I said you don't want to microwave baby bottles. Did you know that? I didn't, but um, we 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 don't really use the microwave at all, so not an issue. Well, the the reason why you don't want to is because microwaves heat basically from the inside out. So when you grab the bottle and you're like, oh, it's lukewarm, the stuff that you're touching on the outside is lukewarm, but the stuff inside might be really hot yeah. and you don't want to hurt baby. I guess we should also say anytime you give baby formula, unless it's directly out of the fridge, and even then, why not? Um, you want to shake a little on the underside of your forearm, right? Because it's a very sensitive area in your skin, and you'll be able to tell whether it's hot or not. I would drop it in my eye. That's a good one. <laughs> it's, it's very sensitive. I'll bet that spring water doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> all right. So, um, like you said, some babies don't mind it cold. Uh, or f- after a while, they may be like, all right, cold is fine with me. But you're still going to want to... Uh, you still want to hold and feed your baby. You don't, you don't like set your baby down on a couch and hand your baby a bottle and walk away. Uh, because A, for a while, that's not even possible. Um, although I will say once the baby can hold the bottle, it's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you still want to be there. Uh, but you're, you know, you want to still be there and provide eye contact and that closeness. Um, you know, it's a big part of it. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Also, I mean, we talked about it in the the breast episode. Skin on skin contact has a lot to do with social development and brain development with babies if, due to oxytocin release. But that doesn't just come from breastfeeding. So anytime you're feeding a baby, you basically should be shirtless from what I'm gathering. 
um, so that any way you hold a baby, whether you're bottle feeding it, whether you're breastfeeding it, whether you're the neighbor uh, or the mailman who's been invited to come be- meet the baby and, and feed it, you want to take your shirt off first <laughs> so that the baby's got some form of skin-to-skin contact while she's she's eating. I never did that. Well, I, it's, I, I don't think it's ever too late. <laughs> Yeah, now it'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a new thing we're trying. So uh, you don't want to have your baby laying down flat. Um, you want your baby, uh, the head elevated a little bit or, mm-hmm. you know, flat out sitting up. If they have reflux problems, you may have to experiment a little bit with that angle. Um, but uh, the one thing you definitely don't want to do is just prop the bottle because that has four specific uh, problems that can happen. Uh, ear infections, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah, because the formula just flows right into the middle ear. Yeah, um, feeding longer than uh, they might normally. Um, and then de- decreased emotional and physical satisfaction from and, being held. Right, and it apparently also increases the potential for cavities, too. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, like, we're talking about you shouldn't put your baby down in a like even if your baby can hold the bottle, you shouldn't lay your baby down in a crib at like bedtime and say here's your bottle to put you to sleep, right? And, and then leave the room because and that and this is a little bit different than just bottle propping, but there are a lot of uh, dangers there. One tooth decay, of course, because mm-hmm. the last thing that should happen is tooth brushing, uh, ear infections, uh, choking, and then just this sleep association. Um, you don't want your baby to be dependent on having that bottle to fall asleep. Right. You're not doing yourself any favors there in sleep training. That's a good point. So that's in the crib, leaving the baby with the bottle. Yeah. Slightly different than bottle propping. Sure. Um, when you are feeding an actual infant um, and you have to hold them up, basically, and, and feed them with the bottle, um, one of the one of the things I think you said was that you, you have a lot of... Um, Opportunity for eye contact, right? Oh, yeah. It's one of the benefits of holding the baby while you're feeding. But you also want to be sure to hold the baby with your left arm one time and then the next time hold the baby with your right arm and just keep going back and forth because apparently their eyes can develop. Um, uh, one one can develop more strongly than the other if it's if the baby's fed facing the same way all the time. Yeah, I never did that either. baby will look up. <laughs> It's funny, it's intuitive, but I could totally see not even thinking about that. Yeah, never thought about it. Yeah. Uh, You want to keep that um, nipple full of milk at all times, which means keeping it uh, pointing down, uh, because you want to decrease the amount of air, uh, because that will make your baby gassy. The more air that baby drinks uh, or swallows while eating, the gassier uh, he's going to be. Right. And when you uh, are feeding your baby, apparently it's good to, to burp him midway between the feeding. Yeah. Definitely after each feeding. Yeah, midway for a while <clears throat> and then eventually um, just after. And burping is, there, there are different ways from over the shoulder, like the sort of classic over the shoulder. Uh, you want to go high, though, and make sure there's some pressure on the abdomen um, to uh, putting just sitting a baby on your lap sideways and holding her under the chin. Uh, and then patting the back or just across the lap, again, with the pressure on the abdomen. And, you know, you want to – people are a little timid, I think, at first, 
because little tiny babies seem so fragile. Yeah. But they are not as fragile as you think. And just tiny little soft pats is doing literally nothing to get that burp out. So if you've ever had a nurse do it for you and show you or... Uh, your mom or someone who's had a few kids, uh-huh. you might be like, oh, my God. My baby. You're beating my baby. <laughs> but that's what you want to do. I mean, obviously, you don't want to, you don't, don't want to like, strike them, but a, a good firm <laughs> pat is what it takes to get that burp out. Yeah. Like, don't be shy. And uh, in my case, uh, my daughter never really burped much from burping. I would try and try and then be like, all right, I guess she's good. And then she would like sit up and go on her own, and you know. <laughs> and then she'd like kind of smile and look at you, like, "What'd you think of that one?" Sort of, and um, you know, I mean, what, whatever you can do to get that little burp out, and it, burp doesn't always come out. So if you try it for a few minutes, and it doesn't happen, then you know they might be good. Yeah, which I'll bet is not not intuitive. I'll bet some babies have just been pounded on for days because the parents. Probably. Why won't you burp? Or, yeah, burp. So, Chuck, um, you were saying before that um, one of the great things about bottle feeding is that it allows other people to share in some of the feeding as well, Yeah. right? Um, It's not just mom who's responsible for feeding the baby. Dads can, too, and other people, like I said, the the mail carrier, whoever. (laughs) Um, But the the idea that it's not just um, sharing responsibility, but also like an opportunity to get to like get closer to your kid as a dad has has got to be pretty appealing as far as the concept of bottle feeding goes, right? Absolutely. You know, like it's when you're breastfeeding, apparently there's a um there is a phenomenon among some some men where they actually become jealous of either their wife or their baby or both because of the bond that's being formed and the amount of attention and time that's being given to the baby through breastfeeding. Yeah, I've heard of that. You have heard of it? I hadn't heard of it until I, I ran into this. Yeah, I've heard of it. I mean, I, I say just get in there, Dad, and you can still be a part of things. Yeah, yeah, you totally it's not like, can. like, oh, you're breastfeeding. Well, I'll just go in the other room then. Yeah, like, fine. <laughs> you know, like sit down with them. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I say get your act together. Yeah, if get in there. you're jealous of your baby because... It's being breastfed. Uh, as far as when, um, there are a couple of methods of feedings, um, demand feeding versus scheduled. Uh, I only have my own experience, which was my daughter just fell into her own routine, basically, and it worked out to be a scheduled routine um, that was pretty pretty tight, like, you know, down to the, you know, 10 or 15 minutes apart wow. on, on a daily basis when it was clear that, so it ended up being scheduled, but she sort of set the schedule, if that makes sense. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know? Right. Um, but, you know, there are two different schools of thought. You can try and stick to that schedule, um, but you may be, you know, pushing that, that rock up the hill constantly, mm-hmm. in which case you might want to think about demand feeding, which is, I feed my baby when my baby says they're hungry. Yeah, and I was I was researching this, and I was like, well... Seems like setting the schedule is the smartest thing to do. And then I, I thought, oh, well, the baby kind of lets you know when he or she's hungry. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily stick to the schedule. So I'm sure the idea of setting a schedule goes right out the window when the baby's, like, screaming. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. The problem with demand feeding, though, is that um, the your baby might come to say, oh, this is, this is enough. This will be enough for this hour. I'll see you in another hour. And right. do that, like, 15 times a day. 
Yeah, one thing I do recommend in, uh, is to track it. Uh, we, we just got a, like a spiral notebook mm-hmm. and tracked the times and the amounts. Because even though you think like, no, 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 I'm keeping up with it. It's, it's really easy to forget how much, uh, they've had that day and you don't want to overfeed them or underfeed sure. them. So just, yeah, we just kept a little daily log, uh, and made it super easy. Did you get the, uh, spiral notebook warmer too? I did actually. <laughs> it was very nice. Nice. It was good. At, at first I was like, oh, who needs it? But then every time <laughs> I put it on my lap, it was all cold. And so, oh, this is nice. Yeah, it was very nice. So, uh, so as a dad, being able to feed your your kid, I mean, like that that has to be pretty special, right? It's the best. Yeah, and that is one of the huge benefits of bottle feeding that that the dad gets to do that too. Um, and just kind of from the research, I got the impression that a lot of dads kind of take this hands off thing, where it's like that's your thing, you feed the baby. I'll uh, I'll go make some money outdoors or something like that, right? <laughs> And and the the idea of the dad being involved in the feeding, like that's part of the thing about bottle feeding the kid is that the dad can be involved, and so the dad should be involved probably in more ways than he even imagines in a lot of cases, too. Yeah. <clears throat> like, yeah like, not just actually feeding the baby, but actually knowing how much formula is needed to prepare and that kind of stuff. Yeah, just like be involved is the best advice, and that's kind of what this article says that you sourced here. Like, you know, don't be a Cro-Magnon uh, or a dad from, like, the 1930s. You know, just be involved. Like, if if uh, your wife is breastfeeding or bottle feeding and she wants to do it and she likes a nice quiet scene and she doesn't want the dogs barking and stuff, like, set up the bedroom and light a candle, take the dogs on a walk, mm-hmm. put on some music, like, run interference. If the phone rings, you know, go get the phone. Just like be involved, right? And and if your uh, if your wife um, or if the mom does choose to breastfeed, if that is where you guys go with it, there's also other stuff you can do too that that isn't just feeding. Like you in the middle of the night, you can go get the baby, bring baby to mom, sure. Take baby back to bed, hang out with baby for a little while while you're burping him or her. Um, there's a lot of stuff you can do, including apparently uh, unwavering support with whatever. Uh, choice the mom makes as far as, or you and the mom, I should say, make um, as far as feeding the baby goes, especially apparently when it comes to breastfeeding. Because again, um, uh, I guess studies have shown that the dad's support, encouragement, and involvement in the choice to breastfeed um, has a huge impact on how long breastfeeding continues, too. Yeah, I imagine. But I, I would guess the same thing goes for formula, too. Like, if you're a mom who decided that you just want to feed your baby formula, you're going to catch a lot of static. So if you're the, the dad, you should be able to run interference for her as well, too, um, with friends, family, all that jazz. Yeah, go fight somebody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. All this stuff seems just intuitive to me and guys like you who, you know, it's not like husband-wife chores. It's like we just all support each other. But I have, like, friends that... You know, like, oh, I didn't wake up, you know, I, when my wife was, I didn't, what could I do? Sure. And I'm like, what year is it? I don't have boobs. Like, like dude, play, play a part. Get up. Get out of bed. Right. I mean, maybe not every time. Like, maybe you can work out the schedule and stuff. Or maybe your wife is like, no, you totally sleep through the night tonight. But, you know, offer. Sure. And, you know, I bet your wife might say, yeah, that'd be great. Go get the baby. Bring her to me. 
Yeah, I take, thought you'd never ask. Take take her back, burper. Yeah, this this kind of stuff reminds me of that that parenting class that Marge and Homer Simpson had to go to once, <laughs> yeah. and the instructor's like, "Remember, place your milk in the refrigerator, or barring that, in a cool wet sack." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Homer was just writing it all down. Get involved, guys. Get your head out of your keister. This is what I say. What else you got? I got nothing else. Oh, this article from How Stuff Works says, don't feed your baby junk, or alco- junk food or alcohol, dads. <laughs> oh, yeah. We forgot about that part. It's, I'm sure. I know that that was huge in the 70s. Like, here, let's have a little beer. Maybe. Hey, baby. Dip, dip that pacifier in whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I thought you about know, it. You know, they used to, uh, yeah, they used to do stuff like that. There was like this, um, what's the, uh, I guess it was colic. It, it, is that, That's the one where the baby's just crying nonstop, right? Yeah, col- colic is uh, supposed to be... Not supposed to be. It's terrible. There was a colic remedy um, that was basically consisted of like these needles, and like you just kind of scraped the baby's skin with it. And the active ingredient was morphine that trickled down the needles and entered the baby's bloodstream, and that's what cured the colic. Wow. Yeah, they used to do all sorts of crazy stuff up to, again, about the seventies. Uh, actually, I do have one more thing. I would just offer. General advice to hang in there if you're a new parent. Um, I, Emily, and I got super, super lucky with uh, great sleep habits and great eating habits and just all this intuitive stuff that we had nothing to do with. Um, you can try your best to do everything you can, and you may feel helpless because that little that little uh, monster Ball of sunshine <laughs> is ruling your household. And you, you might be trying your darndest for sleep or for eating and this and that, and nothing is working. And, um, it, you know, it's not your fault. Like, hang in there because it will change. And that goes for good stuff. Just when you think everything's going great, something will change. And then you'll take two steps back. Just, you know, hang in there. It'll, it'll, it'll all work itself out. Yeah. So the government should give every new parent uh-huh. a the good formula. Yep. A bottle warmer. Uh-huh. And one of those a hang in there, warmer. well, yeah. And one of those hang in there kitty posters, <laughs> absolutely inspirational posters. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about breastfeeding, well, brothers and sisters, there is plenty more to it. Um, you can just start researching online, talk to a doctor you trust, a lactation consultant, a friend who's breastfed, a friend who's used formula. Put it all together, form your own opinion. Uh, and in the meantime. Since I said form your own opinion, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a, a suggestion. We don't usually read suggestions, but this I'd never heard of this dude, so I'm reading it. Um, John Evans, a young man from North Wales, in the very late 18th century, agreed to explore the American interior with his friend uh, Yolo Morganwig. I think they specifically said it's not Yolo. <laughs> I think you're right. It's like they said the O is like yeah, yeah, octopus. Yeah. You're right. People say YOLO, but Welsh people don't care for that. Sorry about that. So they didn't say how to pronounce it, though. They were like, just figure it out yourself, chumps. No, it says you say the O like the first one, octopus. Okay. And the uh, L or I is a Y. So Ayo? I I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
Uh, I'll try and be brief. Uh, he tried to discover a Welsh-speaking tribe in Middle America uh, linked to the Mandan tribes. Uh, we're talking like Patagonia here, not Ohio. Oh, okay. Uh, he went to London, sailed to Boston. Uh, well, maybe he's talking about Ohio. Uh, then just walked in, uh, walked the land, uh, worked for the Spanish mapping out the land, which quickly become his auxiliary task, one that he was very good at. Uh, Lewis and Clark actually used his maps oh. for the majority of their own famous expedition. So, yeah, Ohio. Uh, yeah, he was sort of a diplomat, uh, securing passage up the Mississippi from the native tribes who then controlled it, then headed to New Orleans before uh, realizing no such tribes existed. Um, apparently, <laughs> he's like, well, it was it was worth a try. <laughs> uh, apparently, the guy from Super Furry Animals, um, Griff Rise Reese Reese Griff Reese. Uh-huh. Who, by the way, did you ever like them? Yeah. Did you? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I was into them for a while. They're good. Like, they opened um, for Granddaddy one time, and you won't find a bigger Granddaddy fan than me, but they, like, it was one of the few times where the opening act blew the main act off the stage for me. Oh, yeah. That, that dude is a genius. Musically, intellectually, he's yeah. just a awesome. Yeah, I agree. And I liked them um, as a band, but, like, I was not expecting that out of a live show. Yeah. Like, it blew my mind. Are they still around? I don't know. I don't think so. I know they had an album like in the last several years, last few years. I need to get back into that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and not to not Granddaddy, of course, they were still great. Uh, he, from Super Furry Animals, made a book, a film, an app, and an album about the story and retraced his journey in person. What? Uh, I believe he is actually distantly related. Oh, that's cool. you got to check that out. Yeah, for sure. So he said, this would make a great podcast, dudes. Uh, do yourselves a favor, at least, and look up the book, American Interior, uh, in the same title as the album, and give it a read. So that is from David Evans, and I'm totally going to look that up. Yeah. What's so, it called again? Uh, American Interior. Okay. And then the guy's name was uh, John Evans. Nice. The Explorer. Well, thanks a lot. Who wrote the? Um, who wrote in? Well, David Evans. Man alive. Lots of Evans going on. Uh, thanks a lot, David. We appreciate that for giving us that heads up. We'll definitely check it out. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like David did, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast or Josh Um Clark. You can hang out with Chuck on Facebook at Chuck, Charles W. Chuck Bryant at Facebook.com. Uh, you can hang out with us at facebook.com slash stuff you should know too. You can send us an email at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 